the Tone Deaf Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Deaf Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, uh, welcome to Tone Duff Session number 25. It's almost like the uh, eighth season of Walking Dead. I can't believe we're still on. Uh, I'm here with two longtime friends, but amazing writers. I think you're going to find this interesting. Let me introduce you to Richard Lang and Howard Parr. Say hello, gentlemen. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me today. Yes, yeah. uh, Howard. Thanks, Chime in. So yeah. Howard's got Great the accent. Yeah. Richard does not. I think you'll be able to follow this. Um, I didn't realize this till this morning when I was like getting ready that you guys are the first fiction writers I've had on. If huh. you know, if we don't count Mark Ferrari's ch children's book, <laughs> but uh, uh, this is really quite a thing, and uh, it really got me thinking about uh, for myself and a lot of the rock music writers I came from, just how insignificant of talents we are when compared to someone who has to put something this incredible together. Now not only are they fiction books, they're noir books, so why don't we start from there. What, to you guys, what does that even mean? Yeah, Take it away. Wow, noir is like the whole, we could talk the whole time about noir. Let's I mean, get it going, sure. I came to it really as like 10, 11 year old kid reading stuff from my dad, like Raymond Chandler, you know, Dashiell Hammett. So that was noir to me. I think Los Angeles is the defining noir city in the world. Not that there aren't noir, great noir novels from all over the world, but that was the catalyst for it to me. So, um, you know, I think it's a state of mind, but it also sort of links in a way when you talk music to me, like most punk rock kids I knew were really in noir. Back in that late seventies, you mean the, the films and the books and just that yeah, whole vibe? Yeah, very much. So All that, right. that was where a lot of it. Like I found that a lot of people were discovering it in their teens. People of that era, you know. I mean, there's the classic noir that you know. I guess began with Hammett. You know, in the beginning, the hard-boiled kind of thing, and then that moved into when Chandler got into it. It became much more poetic, and it wasn't just this this straight hard-boiled thing that was also a, it was hard-boiled with a poetic edge and I think uh, then of course the, the term was first used about the films you know it wasn't used about the literature it came right. it, it started with those films from the 30s the, I mean the 40s and the 50s many of which were made by uh, foreign directors who came to LA and had had to flee you know terrible things happening in their own countries came yeah. here they found these the most of the writers that the films were made from were, you know, dime store writers. They weren't the, they weren't famous. They were sort of down on their luck, poor, you know, getting by, or just cranking out the, the the pulp fiction. And for some reason, I guess the desperation of the, those narratives combined with these directors, who, you know, they actually didn't have much choice in what they were doing. They were assigned the films, but when those two came together, however they came together, you seem to get this defining noir thing, which I think the French... That French journalist coined Yeah, term, coined right? it that yeah, in the yeah. 50s or something. Yeah. Well, doesn't yeah. it technically translate to black? Uh, black or yeah, dark, dark or something? Yeah, black. It means something else in France, though. Like, when they talk about a noir novel, 
it doesn't mean what we think of as a detective, uh, you know, trying to solve a crime in a in a in a milieu. It, there are many. They just use it as a, a dark book. So there, right. it's a much broader terminology when they talk about something being noir. It is a sensibility, right? Yeah, I, I exactly. Think, well, I wanted yeah, to start with that and just. So I had a frame of reference. I looked it up. This was the dictionary definition. You'll love this. Crime, fe crime fiction featuring hard-boiled, cynical characters and bleak, sleazy settings. That was the whole thing. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's my world. That's not bad. <laughs> yeah. But it's, not, it's all, barely a full sentence. Uh, so it, also, I wanted to ask you this, uh, just because I was fascinated with how complicated these books are. These, these are real stories. These, these are like full films that you're watching and reading and, and a lot of characters, a lot of settings, a lot of detail. I mean, you really get involved. Both books primarily take place in Los Angeles. And like you said, that, that's the noir city. But you guys are also both you know, residents. Would you have put it somewhere else if that's what you knew more firsthand? Or being firsthand, was that an important part of it? Uh, I'll, ju I'll jump in as I've lived here for 40 years and I came here when I was 17 so I've been around a long time and uh, so it's you know my adopted city but I tend in all my books this is my fifth book uh, to write about stuff I know and places I know this one in particular the neighborhoods that it's set in is kind of set around MacArthur Park over there uh, and in Hollywood those are neighborhoods I know intimately so it's sort of it's sort of easy to write about them, but at the same time, it's it's difficult because I know them so well. I, you know, you don't want to just go shorthand. You want to try to bring some sort of some new uh, angle to it. But I I I always like to write about what and I'm trying to branch out a little more. You know, and and do different things. Like this one, this book in particular, The Smack, my new novel. Uh, it has scenes set in Afghanistan and in uh, you know, right. North Carolina, and so I, I am branching out a little bit. But they do tend to be set close to home. I think it's just, I think it's just for me. It's just because that's the neighborhood I know, and I know how to uh, to get the things that I want out of those neighborhoods to to, to make the story work. But you not being from here originally, I've been here as long as you yeah, have. Yeah, so it's a long like time. it essentially it's this very similar thing you know i mean it's a bit of a corny thing to say but i mean it's truly a love letter to los angeles mm -hmm. like i've always loved it here from the beginning for all of it and this, so and again like you i think very much every aspect of that my novel which is primarily in los angeles does go to some other places are all places i've been and know because i think especially if you, yeah, it's my first novel. I'm not going to write somewhere I don't know. You know, it's, uh, I certainly would find. And, and let's plug that, by the way. I neglected saying it's called uh, Once Upon a Time in L.A. True. And the Smack, which you mentioned, right? But, but you have you have a number of books out. You, this is my third. I've written five books, two books, of collections of short stories, and this is my third novel. And uh, so, yeah, it's been going pretty good. Uh, how did you kick into it? Like originally, to just kind of get going as an you know, author. I. Uh, I went to film school at USC and tried to be a film a screenwriter and I what I didn't realize I came from the middle of nowhere on a scholarship to there and this was before everybody knew everything about film you know that there was no entertainment weekly or I, I didn't know really what it meant to this was you know way back and uh, 
when I came to uh, when I got to film school, I realized, oh my God, you have to work with other people. <laughs> and I realized I wasn't I wasn't very good at that. You know, I mean, it just it just it, it wasn't it, it wasn't what I wanted to do. And I ended up starting to write fiction. And I'd been doing that all. I graduated from film school. Was you know tried to write screenplays that didn't work. Uh, I ended up getting a job in the magazine industry, a day job. And which is where we met. Yeah, it was at Rip Magazine, uh, which was a heavy metal magazine yeah. that Larry Flint published for eight or ten years or something. Pretty good long run. Yeah, had a long run. Right, it was right in the heart of the eighties. Yeah. you know, it was right when the when that was all really happening. But all that time, uh, I was still going home at night and sort of writing on the side and uh, kept doing that, kept doing that for years and years and years, and. I did it the old-fashioned way, sending out short stories to literary journals that pay you in copies. So you know, you, 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 nobody reads those magazines except agents. And after my, you know, tenth story or whatever got published, which was over a course of ten years, I was already forty-two years old when that happened. Uh, when an agent finally contacted me and. From there, it became, oh, do you, have a, you know, I, do you have enough for a book of short stories? Yes. Well, I can't sell only a book of short stories. I need you to have a novel, or at least a part of a novel. And so I had to sit down. I, I, it was really just a hobby. I was still working in the magazine industry as a day job. I'd been doing these stories. It's, you know, it's something to talk about at a cocktail party. I got a story published in, you know, Cut Bank Journal. There was like, what the hell is that? <laughs> but... But it, uh, you know, it, it all it went the classic way, where it then then there was a deal offered for a novel and a book of short stories, and I had to sit, I hadn't written a word of the novel, I had to sit down and write a novel and learn how to do it because I just hadn't planned to do that. I wrote short stories. That's what I just thought. So you must have had a good agent though that at least was able to like secure you a well. I had a, a I had a, I was his demo, only so client. I was his first ah. and only client, and we got. Uh, I, I, somehow we lucked into, I, you know, I, I guess it was the material that he was selling uh, got us into a two-book deal and uh, things have just kept, luckily have kept going from there. You know, I've been able to keep it going. Now it's 10 years ago this week was uh, when my first book of short stories was published. So that's interesting. He saw you as his his meal ticket yes, he did. to maybe get, maybe get himself yeah. and, we, as, and we did well a, for uh, each agent. other. He's not my agent anymore, oh, but all right. you know, but uh, but uh, at that time we we you know, it was kind of an amazing little thing, you know, the the two of us, but things change and you know, you have to move on and but you know, I'm forever grateful to him I'm sure. for finding me out of nowhere, you know, just out of a, a you know, these because little, he read something. These little magazines, yeah. yeah. And then uh, you're obviously connected pretty deeply in the music industry. Did that have anything to do with you getting a publishing deal, or was this all new territory? This was very much new territory for me, um, and it was funny you talk about the writing thing because you know obviously I've worked in music supervision and film industry for like the last 20 years and I really wanted to do people like why don't you write a screenplay I'm like like everyone hey, everyone's <laughs> writing a screenplay and also like you a little bit I was like I want to do I work in a very collaborative medium which I love but I wanted one thing where you weren't relying on funding and you know everything mm. else so I just wanted to go off and write the novel and it was the most naive thing because as it turns out so many amazing people helped me along the way and there was way more people involved in mm. the process than I would ever have guessed because I'd not gone through it before but that was um, 
that was kind of where it were you was. a big reader before you uh, sat down to do your novel I mean yeah you, I, you, I mean you were, I, you were a reader yeah oh I mean I've read I've, I'm just saying that because I meet a lot of guys who want to be novelists who don't read wow you know they like watch a lot of movies but then they want to be novelists I'm like you gotta kind of yeah no <laughs> yeah, no I, I mean I'm you know look as a kid I was reading a lot of these that world mm -hmm. of, at a very young age and I was pretty broad reader I think I would say I'm a way more limited reader now in terms of what I read and it's <laughs> very much in this world a lot of the time quite truthfully yeah. um, with you know occasional derivations but you know I'm sort of focused on that sort of you know genres if you will mm -hmm. um, you know in terms of the publishing aspect of it um, I did some I was doing some research on it and there was a couple of things for me. One, I really, this is a very Los Angeles book, and I really wanted to be West Coast. I just felt like very wanted to be much West Coast. And also the independent spirit of it. And in an era where, you know, we could have way longer conversations about the structure of music companies, what I found when I actually started really learning about the publishing industry structurally it's very similar yeah. to record companies and I was looking at it, I'm like oh I don't think so <laughs> you oh you know? mean when you see the contract and it looks like an indie not rock the, deal well the, the, it's the, just a four companies it's, control it's, it's not a not really I mean this to be honest this wasn't really about the money I mean it was about creative sure, control but also what I'm talking about is like the structure literally of like the kind of A&R person equals your editor, mm. the marketing, the, you know, all of it, you yep. could see where, why would you do that? You know, I mean, for me, at least that was my, my decision. Well, so see, you, you were, you knew that story. You were smart. I and, know, but there's, I mean, I've worked inside a label yeah, for a decade. So, knew, so I, yeah. I kind of understood like <laughs> the, the limitations, the limitations. And what happened, I actually, I did an interview for vice uh, you know the online mag yeah. magazine and it was a sort of wide-ranging interview about things and I mentioned the book because it was just about done at that point and I got uh, an email from uh, Paul Stewart who'd got over the edge which was primarily at that point had done mostly like really high-end hip-hop coffee mm. table books starting to move into like hip-hop fiction and he reached out to me we met he read it loved it and wanted to put it out so it was really to me like Los Angeles publisher, independent, creative control. <laughs> it, it was I was you know that was how it happened. But so you it had it primarily easy. written at this point. It already. was done, it was more or less done. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in fact it, it really was done. I mean I was doing like you know one more like draft polish, <laughs> but it, it was it was done. Yeah, I mean I guess there's from what I find out from talking to people, it seems like almost no one hands in a finished manuscript when they're looking for a deal it seems like well i got this idea here's an outline here's a chapter but like i'm not going to sit down and pound it out till i know i got something happening and but yeah i, I mean I, I did it that way too i had it was here i got a book yeah Isn't that cool yeah that's why i think that's uh for me that's the better way to do it i mean i the, the first time it went i had the book of short stories done but i didn't have the novel and i they were they were very good about letting me uh they didn't. They didn't exert a lot of control. They just let me write the novel that I was going to write. Uh, when I sat down to write it, I had only been writing short stories, so I really didn't know how to write anything that long. And I didn't know about you know, like uh, like 
God, am I going to be able to write a plot? I mean, I, and my short stories don't really have plots. They're just sort of little moments in time. And that's how I, I hadn't originally intended to write crime fiction, but the, the first novel, I needed a structure, and I needed a structure that I knew. And, you know, innately we sort of know this story. I go, well, I know the structure of like a, a crime book, like someone gets killed at the beginning, and then we find out at the end, you know, who did it. And that's that will be something that I, a skeleton that I can hang, you know, this, this story on. Of course, like I blew it, and you find out in the first book who who killed the guy in the third chapter, and it becomes more of a uh, a character study, which is what I always wanted it to be. I, you know, I, I always wanted it to be more than just a procedural. So uh, I just sort of backed into crime fiction, and then it seems like the idea for the second book was sort of set in the same milieu. They're not, you know, they're not detective stories. The first one kind of is, but the other. These two, the, the next two are not. They're more like an Elmore Leonard book. It's more about people trying, people desperately trying to get money or get away from someone. And uh, there's more of like a, a chase element than a uh, solving a, a journey. Crime. Yeah, well, than solving a crime. Well, well, that was another question I had looking at both of your books is that, you know, from my aspect of writing, which is pretty primitive in comparison. I was either transcribing interviews or, case of my book, I'm really just writing out what was a primitive diary into something long. Whereas with so this, correct. how do you? Well, so thank you very much. With that, uh, how did you do? You, do you guys map this out top to bottom before you actually dig in, or is it an outline? Or do you kind of have like a little chart? I'm just trying to wrap my head around how you would get from the beginning to the end of this, or are you kind of winging it in the middle, like I'm here now. Where's this guy gonna go? Um, I'm gonna just be really honest about this, but I, I definitely had the story. The story was always there in my mind. Um, and there's one author that I loved, um, Ross Thomas. Hmm. And I'd read this piece, and you know, whether <laughs> you have to decide when you read the book whether it's good or bad piece of advice. But I read that he used to set up his characters and really let them take over. Like he'd set up a scenario and let them take over. And as much as I knew where we were going to end up, I somewhat adhered to that and the reason I did it was with a lot of authors I love you'd often sense if you read a few of them there's a structure that they tend to stick to time and time again which doesn't make it not enjoyable but it makes it less unpredictable whereas Ross Thomas I'd always feel like I didn't know where they were going to go mm. so that was really the spirit that I entered into it um, I will say the next one is way more mapped out in detail than the first one. And, and some of the first one was just done through ignorance, you know, really, I've not done it before. So I I was winging it to a degree, right. even though I knew the gen, I knew exactly where it was going to end up, but some of the, the ride was, uh, was interesting along the way. I mean, I kind of felt that a little bit like, uh, like you say, like the character, uh-oh, this just happened. Now how am I going to get out of this and maneuver this? Well, i got to go to Mexico and oh my God. And so you kind of feel that sort of, you're almost along for the ride, like, oh, this guy's really got thrown into the sauce and we're along with him. Yeah, you know? it, it, yeah thank you. I mean, it, that's really what I... It, look, I was happy the way it played out, but I, I wouldn't say it's probably the easiest way to do it. Yeah, I, I'm the same way. I just... I kind of have the characters, at least some of them. The, this, 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 like... This story and the last one both started with a magazine, with a newspaper article in the LA Times. In the case of this one, it was about some soldiers 
who had managed to figure out they're in Afghanistan. And oh, so that was a real thing that happened yeah, as far as that that's, a, that's an actual trial. I read about the trial. Huh. That they had figured out a way to smuggle money uh, out of Afghanistan, American dollars that were being used to pay Afghani trucking companies. They figured out how to smuggle it back, get it back to the U.S. It was actually in a safe in someone's apartment. And in the book, uh, it's $2 million. In real life, they got busted for a million, and they think they got five. Wow. So, uh, so they were already spending pretty heavily. Yeah, or they, it's, it's somewhere in the wind now, hidden. So that was the impetus for that. And then uh, I'd always wanted to write about a con man. I, I was kind of basing it on a a friend of mine but I didn't really know how to do it I and mean, when I I kind of put those two together and just sat down and said okay how's this gonna go but I knew kind of how it would end but once again I just let it I just let it go and it, 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 it and that's the way it's always worked for me and I, I get to the middle of the book and have to figure out like oh okay so now this has all happened these <laughs> these people have done this crazy stuff and you know one of the things you're trying to do is to keep people, at least I am as a writer, uh, when I'm writing, you know, when I read a novel, I want it to move along and kind of entertain me. I'm really not, probably not going to write a book about a guy sitting in a room and thinking all day long. Or, <laughs> I, I, I like a little bit Stuff's of action. Stuff's got to happen. Yeah, yeah, I like a little action. So, you know, you're trying to, as, as you're writing along, you're trying to figure out, okay, what can I have happen here that isn't completely crazy, but that will keep people turning pages and going, you know, and going to the end of it. That, that That's half of it. And then the other half for me is creating these compelling characters that people get wrapped up in and they want to see what happens to them. And it's the combination of those two that sort of ends up driving, pushing, pulling to the end. And then, like I said, you, I wind up halfway through saying, okay, now I have to figure it out. And then go in and write it out. I still feel I'm terrible at plotting, that I'm, it's just by luck that that nobody said, like, wait a minute, you know, like, this can't happen. But, uh, you know, I've been very lucky in that way. That I, I actually didn't feel that in either book. I thought oh, that... Because I, I would say, oh, oh, how's he going to get out of this? What's going to happen next? And it would not necessarily make sense in a way life would go, but it, it plotted out and worked. Yeah. Uh, I also want to ask, uh, in both your books, you have very, very compelling uh, lead characters, uh, James Duell and Rowan uh, Petty. Rowan Petty, yes. Um, how much of those guys are you in your instance? Oh, he's throwing it to you, Richard. Uh, <laughs> Rowan is, uh, is sort of based loosely on a person that I know. Uh, but you, you, all your characters, I find this, you know, in, in my writing, all the characters are based on you somehow because they come out of you. You can't. Right. You're not going to create good characters if you sit down and just say, "I'm going to make this villain, you know, be this villain." You have to put words in their mouths, and in order to put realistic words in people's mouths, you have to put yourself in their heads, and you have to be thinking them, you know, thinking in their mind. It's almost like some kind of method acting or something. Mm -hmm. I once read somewhere that, uh, like, when you dream. And like, say you dream of your mother or an old friend or this or that, but you're re those those they're really you because they're coming out of your brain. It's it's not it's not actually your mother or your friend. It's your visualization of your mother or your friend, and that's kind of the the, the same thing with these these books. All the characters in the books are are mouthing things that you know you've you've had to think in one way or another and 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 figure out uh if it's if it's good it's going to be you know it'll be this rational thought where it's going to be a well-rounded character people are going to see from what they say and do they're going to they're going to 
they're going to be rounded where they even my villains you might not like them but you're go I ho always hope that you will understand you know why they do what they do or at least you know you you'll at least have the reasons there in front of you whether you want to understand it or not is isn't I know some people are squeamish about that but I try to give the reasons for everything and to do that you have to get inside all the characters. Was the actor that uh, popped up at uh, Musso's, was that based on someone real? No, he no. was very, very colorful. No, that wasn't based on anybody real. Just kind of a pastiche of people, yeah. you know, that I've met uh, along the way, you know. Well, especially with the, uh, you know, the music business uh, background and the whole A&R thing that James goes through, I was like, well, and then the, the the sort of the giveaway is his love affair with his pet, which I know you you are very much a dog guy. So uh, how how much of that is you? It, you know, this is probably the hardest thing that I really struggle with. And I would say, you know, as I got notes from on the first draft from a couple of pretty amazing authors and Denise Hamilton in particular. Um, I was sort of, I realized that there were bits of me did start to bleed in. Um, what was kind of shocking to me was it's, you know, ultimately it's still a fictional character with a complete noir sensibility. And when people I'd known for a long time started referring to things as if they actually happened in real life, <laughs> and that I just slightly think, and I was like, you know, I mean, I won't give huge plot points away, but I was like, do you really think I committed murder you know, it's like, um, so it was a it's been a, it was a strange one I, I love your analysis which I, I think I'd subscribe to wholeheartedly um, the one thing I'm curious actually just to ask you without trying to evade too much of this question but um, is just I found like one character in particular who really wasn't designed to be in for more than the odd chapter really started taking over at points which that was the most fun thing I think was that once you've got all these characters they do the the most amazing part of this process to me was how they start to really take over and interact like you've given them this it's it's true you are made like you you've created them and then there's this playground and they're they're moving through it and that they do unusual things at times or they stick around longer than exactly. they're supposed to stick yeah, stick yeah. around but you know that that's when you're doing something right and that's when readers are going to you know, when you're surprised, it's kind of a cliche, but when you're surprised as a writer, the reader's going to be surprised and be, uh, you know, it's not just going to be rote, you yeah. know, this rote storytelling. Strange things happen what because they're coming from you as an individual and, and you know, these, these things you've created as an individual and you're letting them play out. It's going to surprise people. I think that was the most fun thing about yeah. writing, honestly, that I had no <laughs> idea of until I was deep in. And then it's all of a sudden it starts to feel a little like, you know, I, yep. I could say a bunch of silly cliche words like magic, but it does start to feel. Well, like, I can't wait to get you know, back songwriters in here always talk about it, the song being dictated. To yeah, them. like oh, I didn't really think of it. I just saw it those down. are the good days. Yeah, <laughs> those are the really good days. Yeah, but there's bad days where it's just grinding it out yeah. and grinding it out. I think that's the key to being a writer is not every day is going to be the magic day. Some days you just have to get in there yeah. and you put in the time and you. You crank it out, and maybe it's not that great that day, but you'll go back and reread it, and there's something in there that, that works. But it's really being being willing to go into a room and bang your head against a wall, you know, for two or three or four, however long people write a day, uh, to, to be able to do that day after day after day and not lose hope and not start thinking, 
oh, I'm a huge fraud. I really am the most untalented person in the world. I don't know. I don't know why anybody ever published anything I ever wrote. Do and that happens, you know, to me every other day. That's not. I have so many writers that you know in different you know mediums along the way for that fundamental of how they did it. And I, I would say, like every good writer would say, pretty much what you just said. Hmm. You know, and that 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 really is serious about it. And it's, it's just it's a matter of grinding it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, don't you think a lot of that comes from back in the day when we had magazine jobs with hard deadlines? We are at the printer. You, you can't still be messing around with stuff. It's got to be done good or bad. Yeah, yeah. And like the old joke, the editor will, you know, the editor never asks, is it good? Is, this, is it done? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was as, a, as an editor. I, I never, you know, I, uh, I had a rule when I worked in magazines. I never wrote for any of the magazines I worked on. I only edited. Why is that? Uh, because I was writing at home at night these silly okay. stories that I was sending off, and I just, I couldn't. And, and truthfully, I was a terrible journalist. I just, it took me so, I could not turn anything on time. It took me so long to, I'd want everything to be perfect, and it would take me so long to write a record review that it wasn't worth the $25 or whatever they were paying to do it. It just, it, it, it wasn't. But, the great thing about being an editor is that I saw all kinds of writing from all kinds of writers at all kinds of levels. And I was, you know, some writers you had to extensively edit. And it was really great for me now. Uh, my manuscripts go in like practically clean because I've just, it's, I've spent so many years, I know how to get a flow in things and how to, how, how to move things along. And it was all due to those days of editing uh, at, at rip i was editing you know basically like music fans were writing and then i worked on a uh, a radio trade paper so i was editing djs they had columns every week so they aren't professional writers you have to go in as an editor and make them sound coherent and interesting and though that, that was a skill that really helped when it, yeah. when it came to writing well plus in a lot of those music magazines it's uh, people have gigs because they're so knowledgeable mm -hmm. as fans, yeah. but maybe not too skilled as yeah. people that can communicate. And I mean, I go back to having to edit the uh, the review pages of Music Connection in the '80s, prior <laughs> to like computer. You know, you can only imagine what kind of stuff right. was some of it handwritten. And it was just like, oh my lord! I'm like a, you know, it's like being a seventh grade school teacher. Right. I, I hand wrote my book. <laughs> I you did. did? I do too. Yeah. I hand write. Wow! I can't yeah. imagine that. Yeah. Well, with me, my handwriting's so horrible. I'm mine not sure I would so be able mine. to go back. It's terrible. I have to. What I have to do is I work. I have one like the the one notebook I'm scribbling in. Like the next later that day or the next day, I transcribe it into a little more legible writing. And then I try to get it into a computer by like the third day or so because literally I won't be able to read what I wrote. You know, my, I, you know, I can get a vague outline of it, but my handwriting is so terrible that I can barely read it. Well, then, but yet I, I need to handwrite. How long would it have taken you to crank this whole thing out top to bottom? This was, uh, this was about a year, a year and a half, you know, a total time. But in that time, I was doing like screenwriting stuff, and uh, you know, I had other little things that were I. I was doing movie stuff to make sure. money, the between in, in between. So this book was written in like basically three big chunks, you know, which I don't ever want to do that again. I want to, you know, it, it it was hard to, it's very hard to co go back and forth between the two kinds of writing and the to catch that voice again. Like I prefer when I'm writing just to be 
working on one project and my whole mind is in it. So when I go to sleep at night, that's what I'm thinking about. I'm not thinking about like, oh, that's also the screenplay. I'm working, you know, I keep it to one. It, it, it's much better for me if I keep it to one project because then all the inspirations and all the things I see during the day that end up in the books because a lot of the stuff in the books is they're almost like diaries. Right. And literally, if I go out and see something that day, some strange thing on the street or hear something, it'll make it into the book the next day. That's nice. And so it's, uh, you know, it's a, it, they're very real world. It gives you authenticity. Yeah, and you're, and you're real world, it's yeah. real world based. So I can read these, like, the novels like diaries. I, I'll remember the exact days. They fit, into, they fit into the narrative, but to me, there are these little touchstones of, of things that I remember. Huh. Howard, how's that play out for you? I... Obviously, you know, you've been doing this a lot longer. I was, you know, obviously music supervising multiple films all the time, all the distractions that you don't want. And I wrote, I found the best thing I could do was get off the grid, sort of. I wrote big chunks in bursts in Jamaica, Costa Rica. I finished it in Buenos Aires. You know, no it was kidding. like I had to get away to really, and it, part of that was my own discipline that I had to learn. You know, not to have a TV anywhere near you, not to have a phone. You know, I needed to. Internet. I, yeah, I mean the internet. I mean, I, I don't know if we can. Well, actually, I won't say it out loud. What someone told. Well, the hardest thing for me actually was not the first draft because, I, as I said, I did it in notebooks and had this amazing. Uh, How long did it take you to do your first draft? God, I don't remember. Longer than I'd care to admit, truthfully. Yeah. Um, the second one was harder because then I had to do it on a laptop. And I had a screenwriter, filmmaker friend who gave me some very blunt three-line advice. I don't know if that's what your language is. Oh, like. yeah, we have no language barrier. Okay. I mean, yeah, I was fine. like complaining and whining like a baby. And she's like, turn the fucking internet off. And I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I understand. I don't know if you are aware of this, but I've been told, and I, I haven't enacted it, but that there is a program you can have which will that writers use where you can shut or shut off it your internet whenever once it's programmed you can't change it so it's you know how many hours you choose like to write four hours yeah. it's off Eight, it won't whatever. come off yeah. Yeah. what if you need to look something up sorry you gotta do yeah. it later yeah because oh, man. that's that's my excuse oh i gotta look this up like uh did you know it's on the this, encyclopedia on this street was is there that burrito place i better go in and google map it and then you know you get off into rabbit, rabbit holes right? yeah, and yeah. you're just you can waste hours researching you know uh i'm doing a thing now where i'm there's a small reference to the civil war and i've spent four hours researching this thing that's going to be five lines in the book but you know it, it, it's it's a way to avoid having to do the but that's the also important though too don't you think like for, it, it is if someone me. if you're reading along you go oh come on that's not how it works yeah. you yeah. that sort of blows a hole in the author's hole very important thing to me. yeah yeah no it's it's critical I and mean, that's really why i wanted to write like the music business thing really came from like at that point i'd never read anyone like you read books from an artist's point of view, I'd never really read stuff from the business mm. darkness of that. And I was like, you know, I know this, you know, I, I couldn't, I didn't have to research that in a way. So the first, it didn't have a ton of research except just double checking little pieces of geography from the time, you know, stuff that might have Timeline shifted, type but, stuff. But, um, sure. but it was way easier. It's always a compliment when someone says like my, my second novel, there was a bunch of stuff set in a uh, Mexican prison. And people are like, wow, did you go to that prison? I mean, that's so amazing, you know, like uh, how you know all that. I'm like, 
Well, the internet does have video. I mean, in this prison I'm writing about, it's a real prison called La Mesa in Tijuana. And uh, t I found video of like Christians going in and singing with the inmates. So I can tell you what color the, the walls were, you know, what the bars looked like. If you just watch this video, you, you picked up the, the 10 or 12 things that you could use. And the, the, the danger in that is not to over-research because then you just want to put in all of this knowledge that you have and you slow the story down with sort of useless detail. You have to really That's pick and- That's a tricky balance. Yeah, you got to pick I, and I, choose. I'm finding that a little bit with the second one with places where I really want to evoke the time, mm -hmm. but like keep it at that pace. I think it's the hardest thing for yeah. me is finding that balance as you go. Because you, you find great stuff, you go, I can't even use it. You know, I mean, yeah. I gotta just, you know, unless you can, you know, you really try to weave it in in another way, uh, in narratively or, or yeah. in a conversation rather than just laying out your facts like it's a Wikipedia yeah. entry. Yeah. Can you uh, give us a hint on what the next one is? Uh, well, when I first met Denise Hamilton, who's a really great LA crime writer, if you guys have not read mm -hmm. her, um, she, it was a lot, beautiful story really, where she, the gift that she gave me of someone I'd not met before was pretty amazing, but she had said, oh, you need to write a story about your club here, and I was like, well, that's not this story, but I'll do it next if you know, <laughs> thank you for your help. And so I'm honoring that promise, and it's set very much around 1980, Los Angeles, 79 into 80, like the sort of last bits of punk before it changed into that, the early scar days here. Um, but of course, someone gets killed, so. Oh, of course. Pre-hardcore, yeah. pre beginning, yeah. beginning, it just, end yeah. of the Star It's not Wars. really gonna touch on hardcore particularly. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's more about, but it is very much about that time. You know, the desolate buildings mm. going to parties at like Errol Flynn's deserted place. Which is right here. From here. Yes. That's right, <laughs> right in my mind, you know. I was actually doing a little online research just to make sure I remembered it right, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's really capturing that sense of Los Angeles at that minute in time that's really desolate. Like the Sunset Tower was, you know, verging on a crash pad at that point, mm. you know, and those kind of places. I love that. I want to evoke that mm. in amongst this story. It's hard to even... Uh I mean, people that haven't been here—it's almost—it's like a lost thing. Yeah. You almost have to watch movies from the '70s or '80s mm -hmm. to like, what's that? That's Hollywood. That's yeah. what it looked like. What it like. looked like then. Yeah. That's you know. why I wanted to write it because I thought, you know, a, it was a promise, and b, I'm finding it's like the best fun. Although it's very close to home, so that's slightly different. Whereas the other one was so fiction. I've got to. There's a little. Some of this is so close to home. I want to try and make it sure it's just fun and fiction mm. as well. But fairly. A fair amount of real people are going to wander in and out of this building. Oh, I'm sure. Well, and we should mention, just for people that don't know, Howard actually ran, if I'm not wrong, probably the first club that was in Silver Lake when everything was West Side yeah. and Santa Monica sure. and Sunset Strip. Well, you was had, it? it was called the On Club. Oh, I used Tell to us go, a little I about used to go there. Did you? I saw okay. Flipper at the On Club. That makes okay. sense. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, that was that was it. So now, what, what's what's there now? Is is it Cross Street and Los Globos? It is. It's it's funny actually because it's three. It was three oh three seven Sunset. It was like block west of Silver Lake Boulevard. It's indeed across from Los Globos. And there's a taco stand there now. I actually haven't been to look at it, but someone told me that it's now like a beauty bar. Mm. And I was like, that is just so. It must funny be next to Diablo Taco. Well, there's a Setiamari's Taco, the outdoor one. Yeah. that's right there. I think. 
yeah, it's from what I can remember. You know, those days are a little hazy, but uh, but it, it might be the next further, corner. Yeah, yeah, the next one down. Yeah, it's literally it was across the street from Los Globos. You yeah, see it I remember seeing. We'd go down there, we'd see Los Globos, and at that time, I think it was just Los Globos was just a Latin bar, maybe a lesbian bar. I think that was a rumor that I that think we, they had dancing. Latin, that we heard, like, you know, yeah. But uh, boy, that was a great club. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. Very focused. I saw uh, the Bangles on Halloween. <laughs> yeah. With yeah. Paul Rossler. And we thought they were, wow, this band's really, really good. Maybe they might the, have been something might bangs. happen with them. They <laughs> might have been called the Bangs still. Yeah, they might have very possible. They might Bangs yeah. into Bangles. But yeah, yeah I, it just, again, I wasn't sort of, I'm not nostalgic by nature, but finding that when I found the story that I loved, setting it then has been really it's also something that hasn't been overdone yeah you know what yeah. i mean it's yeah. kind of fresh territory i mean i'd be yeah. really interested to read that since that was when you know i was in my club heyday and, well, and yeah. you just made me think of a question i didn't write down so you guys besides being writers are both involved in one way or the other in the film business and you're writing these you know super visual storytelling books is that is that anything on the horizon of these perhaps getting made into something uh, well, my last one got optioned and uh, by Warner Brothers, and they actually somehow hired me to write the screenplay. Who had never written. So is that what you've been working mm -hmm. on a screenplay? That no, I actually that didn't go well. It's, so now someone else is writing it, and it's out in the world. You know, you get these options and, and stuff. But I do now have what 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 my agents want, and I think a lot of novelists uh, who are getting involved in the business. It's TV. They want they want you to write TV. They f feel that a novelist has a, uh, a a wider vision that would be perfect for a longer form series rather than right. these films. And plus, Which is all, such a thing nowadays. Yeah. So and there and there's so much uh, room. You know, there's exactly. they need material. So what I've been doing is writing pilots and having meetings. I just. Uh, optioned a pilot to a guy from the music business, Jordan Schur. He ran Geffen for a while. Mm. He's now got a film company, and they've done a few films. And so they want to go into TV, and they've, they've, I'm doing a thing with them. And interesting. Yeah, it's you, that's what you enjoy what it. Yeah, it's a different. It's a different thing. Like once again, you have to work with other people. You have to take notes, which I hate taking notes. I, I would just, assume it's fairly committee driven in uh, many ways. At the level I'm at, it's uh, it's uh, they they uh, you know the first round of notes. I'm sure if anything ever well when when I did the screenplay, I did have to go into a meeting where I turned it in and they said, okay, now we're going to make this into a Warner Brothers screenplay. So I had to go in and sit with a guy and we had to go through page by page and you know people who died in the book didn't get to die in the movie. <laughs> Uh, really? That's so oh yeah. How does that work? There's like, a, there's like a person from the corporation yeah. that goes. There's like certain brand things. That it's have just to a happen. guy who's there, and he goes like, uh, a certain actor wants to do this. They don't want to die, so <laughs> that guy can't die. Wow. And so you have to like then okay. And you know some writers get insulted and say you know fuck you I'm leaving. But me and I said you know what they're paying me great money. I'm going to learn a ton by sitting here and going yeah. through this process. The book is always there, and that's the thing I care about the most, you know, is that book. It's there. It's always going to be there. And people can say, man, that book was so much better than this shitty movie. But 
I, I was really into it for the process, and I'm still, I mean, I'm still learning it, you know. I'm still learning how to write books, you yeah. know. I'm in number five, well, everything, everything's I'm still a learning, learning every, every time I sit down to do it. I, it feels like I forgot everything I learned on the last one, and I'm, I'm going in fresh. And so the same with this film stuff. It's all, uh, it's all new for me, even though I went to film school back when, and it's, it's, much, it's much different when you're sitting in a room and it's on a practical level, and you're seeing that... The way that these guys, the minds work that put together the, the at least these big films like Warner Brothers, it's it's a puzzle that they know better than I do. Oh, yeah, I guess so that makes you sense. You let them guide you along. But you raise the question: What actor doesn't want to have a good death scene? Yeah. I mean, come on! <laughs> I, you know, the pinnacle you, of your career. You'd be somebody. surprised. Ask Leonardo DiCaprio. <clears throat> oh, all right, we broke it here, folks. <laughs> I love it. That's the way to go. <laughs> Yeah, I, I really look, I, I could echo most everything you said about that and the process. And early on, when someone actually, one filmmaker said, Oh, I'm going to do that movie. And I'm like, That's not mm. going to be a movie. And then, oh. you know, because I, I was being precious in the yeah. midst of it, you know, and when I got finished, and now, like, it's a whole, I agree with you. It's like the book is what it is. Whatever it becomes next, I'm really kind of intrigued by. It, and the process is. You know, I, I'm used to the process just from another point mm -hmm. of view of being in the mix of a film from very script stages right to the finish. So I'm, you know, familiar with the process. So it, it doesn't scare me at this point, and I'm kind of embracing. Is that something? Because I, I think a lot of us, especially on the more band record company side, are just mystified at the music supervi supervisor process. Like, how do you get anything in, and what gets passed, and and then you, as the middle guy, have got to show the director and the film people, hey, this is what works. Yeah. That just always freaks me out. So uh, at what point are you involved in, on it, that end it, of it? It can, it can vary, but when it's with filmmakers that I've worked with previously or producers I've worked with previously, at script stage normally is, would be the first point really? where you start thinking about mm. the scope of the music that the characters would have in their lives. You know, obviously in things like 20th Century Women or Diary of a Teenage Girl where it's period, it's a very specific moment in time and um, so it can be pretty early and then obviously you're going to the end because the music's the last thing to get finished, you know. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty awesome. How often does it happen that, oh, this song is just crucial to the, to the movie and you can't get it? Hasn't, ha I mean, this is, I'm right at a critical <laughs> point on a couple of things, so I really don't want to jinx anything here. Um, I mean, it's something I've learned to be very say, dogged about of getting the things and there's you know it's a whole other conversation really but it, it hasn't happened very often okay if the money's available usually the, the song can be had yeah and there's I mean I do a great most of my time is spent in independent films. There's never money. I was going to say, yeah, yeah a lot of times <laughs> there's it never might like there's not the throwing money at things most of the time, but it's um, it's a process, you know. And um, I mean, you, I will say things change a lot, and obviously from that's the band's mystified point of view. It's like when you go into something, you know, one of the fun things about it is you might sit with. <clears throat> you know a director at the beginning go god we've got to have this song it's gonna be so perfect and then you the film gets shot and then you put it up to that scene it's mm. like oh it's either like oh yeah we were so right or 
oh, this doesn't work at all. We've got to go here. <laughs> and it, that's the joy of the editorial process, you know, um, or you know, the, the highs and lows of it in a way. But it, it's the the adventure of it is is all. But that it makes it very hard to tell someone, yeah, your song is definitely going to be unless it's scripted in and there's someone singing to it or there's something like that. It can always evolve as a film mm. evolves. It's like the one I'm in the midst of right now. It's it's been a couple of songs that we absolutely loved, and then as the editorial process gets a bit further down the road, we're like, wow, it doesn't work anymore because some other scene you know it's like mm-hmm. you you're probably getting you're familiar with it but the, you know something shifts in the film and you're like oh that totally doesn't work anymore mm. we oh. should mention also that your book has an actual soundtrack that you can listen to and enjoy as the book is rolling along which i believe is a first i think it was it yeah it's on spotify and um it's uh, 70 odd songs and uh yeah, it's a, it's a fun ride. I mean, it was a really, it was a very natural thing for me to write songs in because I think that's part of that is just a natural thing for me to always have something in mind, like whether in real life, in film, or whatever, in fiction. So I, I love doing it, and I'm definitely doing it. And it's keyed. It's keyed to the book. I mean, as you're on a certain page, it's it, the 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 store. The songs are mentioned. Mm-hmm page by page so it it's the, on the the, yeah the yeah. soundtrack's sequential online mm. so you could absolutely listen along yeah. if you were reading it about that pace <laughs> yeah that's quite a thing keep, keep moving along sounds good uh, has there been any talk about uh, your book maybe becoming a film because yeah, I I've could had, certainly see that yeah I, it, I'm actually really starting to focus on it now for the first time to be honest with you because um, a lot of different ideas popped around and I'm now getting kind of serious about looking to the next step so that's cool something. fingers crossed Oh, that's awesome. Now, another thing we, t- we touched on before we uh, hit record uh, that I've actually been thinking about a lot lately with my job because I'm, I deal with bands and a couple of them just finished records. And I think musicians, like authors, have a certain creative talent. And then when it comes time to the visual end of it, hey, what's the cover going to look like? They are stumped. And <laughs> I think sometimes that happens with authors, too. And I looked at your covers and I thought they were pretty great, but it wasn't exactly what I would have immediately thought of as the cover to that story I just read. How was that? A, I, we talked about it a little bit, but let's let's get on I, tape. How, what kind I, of process was that to get well, to the end to get the cover happening? Yeah, I mean, the thing for me was I I, we t- I told the long version of this story before we got on the air, but Mona Kuhn, who's an amazing fine arts photographer, the initial idea when she read the book and loved a lot of the geographic locations was to use a physical location from the book. And as, in truth, when you start to think about it, and I don't know how you think about it, but in this era where there's a lot of people, you know, for better or worse, are gonna see that image in a tiny shrunken form Mm -hmm. online, I ended up, or we ended up during the process deciding we wanted a, a person on the cover. And the, you know, the woman who's actually a friend that we used in the end sort of evoked for me a couple of the characters in the book, you know, in a way that it wasn't very specifically spoke to. This is, you know, the aerial character, but it was a time and a kind of slightly noir look to it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't the first thought, but it ended up feeling the absolute right. Right. And then the backs obviously got some you know, the stacks, you know, the label and, you know, the private number logo, because that was just to get a little music reference in. And, and the stacks people were kind enough to give us that oh, nice. for free. So that was <laughs> to stacks records always. Yeah, it, it, the way it works, I'm, I'm on a big 
you know, I'm on Little Brown, or now it's Mulholland. It's it's owned by Hachette. So you go into these, the, and, and I'm not uh, James Patterson or some big writer, so I don't have much say in the covers. What I do get is they ask for my influence, my uh, any in, any input I have, and I just, like as we were saying before, I send in album covers that I've liked and book covers that I've liked, and they send me back stuff that usually has nothing to do with that. But uh, you know they they've hit it they've hit it the first time on a, on two of them and then the other three we've gone back and forth on I'll say I mean the uh, for one of the books I just said no you know completely no and none of these you know they had four or five and I said these are all so at least not they don't good, override very lazy you. no then they they all go back and try again I can feel when I'm pushing a little too much my editor gets like uh, you should choose you know something you know like we should start getting towards something so and I'm not I'm not an, an asshole I'm not hard to please it's just if if they're wrong they're very wrong you know when they get when, if they're very wrong I'm gonna tell them and for a example on the last book of short stories I, uh, I wanted a coyote on the cover and they kept sending this picture that was a wolf and I said that is a wolf that is not a coyote that doesn't read maybe that's a coyote head it doesn't read as a coyote and I could tell they were getting they redrew it and sent it back and I said that's not it and finally I had to snap a, get something off the internet I found a graphic of a coyote and sent it to him and I ended up using that very graphic you know, on the cover, and it reads as a coyote, and it's a coyote. But you know, you, I, I, I do have input, but it is definitely not me designing. There are very, there are smarter people than me who, uh, who are doing the design, who are, who work in that. You know, who, who know what, what looks good on a bookshelf. Because one thing I notice a lot with self-published writers is their covers suck. You know, they look, when I, I can just pick it out, I can go, well, that's a self-published author. Because they don't have an art department. You can just tell, well, it's not even just that, it's they're, they're, they're not looking at what books are on shelves, and that's, if, if your plan is to sell through a store, to be in a, a store, which, I don't know, there are hardly any bookstores anymore. But it's still critical. I mean, I yeah. still think that it's way. Got yeah, I want to go in books that, like, being in book soup was the the highest point of this whole process <laughs> yeah. for me. Yeah, and true enough. I'm going, and I did actually go at that time and just wander and just really look, not to copy, but just to make sure, because you know it's when you're doing something do. with a sort of genre thing like this, where we're very much, you know, it needs to be, you know, as there has to be some signifiers that yeah, it's it, this it, year. Yeah, but it's got you know you need. So I I know like. The thing to me that about this that's the heart would be hardest to see that control is not be, to any disrespect to amazing art people and the, you know I've interacted with people like that at labels again very similar sort of process with artists over the years, but it's critical like I you know if you buy a record you know are you you know maybe not quite so much in this era but if you talk about a time where you're buying something yeah. from walking into a bookshop or a record shop that album cover better speak to what that is in yeah. some way that feels right to the artist that's why I would never want to jam an artist some bad cover and you know people have got to be involved in that outreach of their you know quote unquote art so yeah. I, I think that's the hardest thing when I found that that publishers don't give authors that yeah. and more or less whoever they are for them as far as I gather that was like oh no it's a big it's like you said it's like a record company it's a big machine working there I, I, I think probably even record companies give the bands more leeway than they well, give well nowadays they give uh, it's actually it's flipped 
90 degrees in that, uh, you know, they'll say, a lot, a lot of times a record deal nowadays is actually a licensing deal. They yeah. don't want to own it forever mm. anymore. Yeah. It's just kind of changing. We'll mm. get rid of this in 10 years. It won't be any good anyway. <laughs> and so they're like, you know, they've licensed the record. Okay, here's the music. Yeah, great. Okay, what's your cover? Yeah. What? Well, we don't know. We're well, stupid musicians, you know. So it's like, then that becomes a big struggle. Mm. And like, mm. maybe you can get someone at the label to kind of help you out, but not like the old days where they go, hey, we got some ideas, and what do you think right. of it? Like, more like what you guys are going yeah. through. Yeah. Another interesting point is, uh, and you mentioned it earlier, it's got to look good on the bookshelf, and it's got to look good when you pop it up on mm -hmm. Amazon, and it's three times smaller. Mm -hmm. That's a tough thing that to find. That was the hardest part to me, and what changed my thinking really, in truth, was that. Mm -hmm. um, That's why you went when you went from your site specific to putting a yeah, figure. Yeah, I mean, I'd like I was I, look. I was really lucky because you know the a the publisher was you know, I've done a lot of really cool stuff. I also had like a, you know, really lucky to get help from my friend Ophelia Chong, who's a great designer in herself. So I was getting all this great input and that was the one thing I hadn't really dwelt on until we were right in the thick of it was that part. And just mm -hmm. in real life, that's unfortunately how it is. You know, there's yeah. not enough book soups, the mystery bookshops, you know, the one I met Denise, that's no longer there. You know, things, yeah. those little interactive things are not there in, in the physical sense so much. So well, yeah, we love book soup and stories and the places that keep oh, it going. Yeah. 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 Skylight. Skylight, very true. Well, gentlemen, we're about at the end of our journey here. I really want to thank you for coming by. Anything we forgot to mention or cover it all? How about got, that? I think we got it all. All right. Well, very good. Say goodbye, to everybody, and uh, thanks we'll see you guys Bruce. later. This was the best fun. Yeah, cool. thanks, Bruce. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Tone Duff Sessions, a feature of Rare Bird Radio. On the next episode, we welcome... Blank Patch and Joel Bryant, comedians, roller derby announcers, and perhaps somebody who can finally explain the long-running joke to the aristocrats. And what a power champ it is.